Chapter Eighteen of Bullets and Billets by Bruce Bairn's Father. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eighteen: The Painter and Decorator. Fragments forming. Night on the Mud Prairie. Had a fairly peaceful night. I say fairly because when one has to get up three or four times to see whether the accumulated rattle of rifle fire is going to lead to a battle, or turn out only to be merely wind up, it rather disturbs one's rest. You see, had an attack of some sort come on, yours truly would have had to run about a mile and a half to some central spot to overlook the machine-gun department. I used to think that to be actually with one gun was the best idea. But I subsequently found that this plan hampered me considerably from getting to my others, the reason being that once established in one spot during an open trench attack, it is practically impossible to get to another part whilst the action is on. At the Douve, however, I discovered a way of getting round this, which I will describe later. On this first night, not being very familiar with the neighborhood, I found it difficult to ignore the weird noises which floated in through the sack-covered hole. There is something very eerie and strange about echoing rifle shots in the silence of the night. Once I got up and walked out into the courtyard of the farm, and passing through it came out onto the end of the road. All is still as still could be except the distant intermittent crackling of the rifles coming from away across the plain, beyond the long, straight row of lofty poplar trees which mark the road. A silence of some length might supervene in which one would only hear the gentle rustling of the leaves. Then suddenly, far away on the right, a faint surging roar can be heard, and then louder, and louder, wind up over there. Then gradually silence would assert itself once more and leave you with nothing but the rustling leaves and the crack of the sniper's rifle on the Messines Ridge. My first morning at this farm was, by special request, to be spent in decorating the walls. There wasn't much for anyone to do in the daytime, as nobody could go out. The same complaint as the other place in St. Yvonne. We mustn't look as if anyone lives in the farm. Drawing, therefore, was a great aid to me in passing the day. Whilst at breakfast I made a casual examination of the room where we had our meals. I was not the first to draw on the walls of that room. Someone in a previous battalion had already put three or four sketches on various parts of the fireplace. Several large spaces remained all round the room, however, but I noticed that the surface was very poor compared with the wall round the fireplace. The main surface was a rough sort of thing, and on regarding it closely it looked as if it was made of frozen porridge being slightly rough and of a grey-brown colour. I didn't know what on earth I could use to draw on this surface, but after breakfast I started to scheme out something. I went into the back room which we were now using as a kitchen, and finding some charcoal I tried that. It was quite useless. Wouldn't make a mark on the wall at all. Why, I don't know. But the charcoal just glided about and merely seemed to make dents and scratches on the frozen porridge. I then tried to make up a mixture. It occurred to me that possibly soot might be made into a sort of ink and used with a paintbrush. I tried this, but drew a blank again. I was bordering on despair when my servant said he thought he had put a bottle of India ink in my pack when we left to come into the trenches this time. He had a look and found that his conjecture was right. He had got a bottle of India ink and a few brushes as he thought I might want to draw something, so had equipped the pack accordingly. I now started my fresco act on the walls of the Dew Farm. I spent most of the day on the job and discovered how some startling effects could be produced. Materials were a bottle of India ink, a couple of brushes, about a hundredweight of useless charcoal, and a G.S. blue and red pencil. 
Amongst the rough sketches that I did that day were the original drawings for two subsequent fragments of mine. One was the rough idea for They've Evidently Seen Me, and the other was My Dream for Years to Come. The idea for They've Evidently Seen Me came whilst carrying back that table to St. Yvonne, as I mentioned in a previous chapter. But the scenario for the idea was not provided for until I went to this farm some time later. In intervals of working at the walls, I rambled about the farm building and went up into a loft over a barn at the end of the farm nearest the trenches. I looked out through a hole in the tiles just in time to hear a shell come over from away back amongst the Germans somewhere and land about five hundred yards to the left. The sentence, They've evidently seen me, came flashing across my mind again, and I now saw the correct setting in my mind, i.e., the enthusiastic observer looking out of the top of a narrow chimney whilst a remarkably well-aimed shell leads him of the binoculars to suppose that they have seen him. I came downstairs and made a pencil sketch of my idea, and before I left the trenches that time I had done a wash drawing and sent it to England. This was my second fragment. The other sketch, my dream for years to come, was drawn on one wall of a small apple or potato room, opening off our big room, and the drawing occupied the whole wall. I knocked off drawing about four o'clock and did a little of the alternative occupation, that of looking out through the cracked windows onto the mutilated courtyard in front. It was getting darker now and nearing the time when I had to put on all my tackle and gird myself up from my round of the trenches. As soon as it was nearly dark I started out. The other officers generally left a bit later, but as I had such a long way to go and as I wanted to examine the country while there was yet a little light, I started at dusk. Not yet knowing exactly how much the enemy could see on the open mud flat, I determined to go along by the river bank, and by keeping among the trees I hoped to escape observation. I made for the Douve and soon got along as far as the row of farms. I explored all these, and a shocking sight they were. All charred and ruined, and the skeleton remained slowly decomposing away into the unwholesome ground about them. I went inside several of the dismantled rooms. Nearly all contained old and battered bits of soldiers' equipment, empty tins, and remnants of Belgian property. Sad relics of former billeting, a living reminder of the rough times that had preceded our arrival in this locality. I passed on to another farm and entered the yard near the river. It was nearly full of black wooden crosses roughly made and painted over with tar. All that was left to mark the graves of those who had died to get our trenches where they were at the bottom of the Messines Ridge. A bleak and somber winter's night, that courtyard of the ruined farm, the rows of crosses. I often think of it all now. As the darkness came on, I proceeded towards the trenches, and when it had become sufficiently dark, I entered the old farm by the reserve trench and crossed the yard to enter the field which led to the first of our trenches. At St. Yvon it was pretty airy work, going the rounds at night, but this was a jolly sight more so. The country was far more open, and although the Bosch couldn't see us, yet they kept up an incessant sniping demonstration. Picking up my sergeant at number one trench, he and I started on our tour. We made a long and exhaustive examination that night, both of the existing machine-gun emplacements and of the entire ground with a view to changing our positions. It was a long time before I finally left the trenches and started off across the desolate expanse to the Douve farm, and I was dead beat when I arrived there. On getting into the big room I found the colonel who had just come in. "'Where's that right-hand gun of yours, Baron's father?' he asked. "'Down on the right of number two trench, sir,' I answered, 
just by the two willows near the sap which runs out towards number one. It's not much of a place for it, he said. Where we ought to have it is to the right of the sap, so that it enfilades the whole front of that trench. When do you want it moved, sir? I asked. Well, it ought to be done at once. It's no good where it is. That fixed it. I knew what he wanted, so I started out again back over the mile and a half to alter the gun. It was a weary job, but I would have gone on going back and altering the whole lot for our colonel, who was the best line in commanding officers I ever struck. Everyone had the most perfect confidence in him. He was the most shell, bullet, and bomb-defying person I have ever seen. When I got back for the second time that night, I was quite ready to roll up in the straw and be lulled off to sleep by the crackling rifle fire outside. End of chapter 18 Recording by Philip Gould